and welcome to episode one of We Are The Makers. Commissioned by Solus Nua in Washington, D.C., this is the first in a series of quarterly shows that will be taking deep dives into back catalogues and bodies of work of some of our most eminent artists working here on the island of Ireland with the makers themselves as our guide. First up is photographer Eamon Doyle. My name is Donald Deneen, and I'm very happy to be your host as we navigate this new path to the waterfall together in sound. The cultural map of contemporary Ireland is a rich tapestry of many interwoven threads and cross-flowing patterns made of form, light and sound. All the elements combined provide us with a world of art that is both our pride and our joy too, here on this island. Our feeling for art and the many ways in which we have recourse to it are signifiers of the value we place on both the acts and fruits of creativity. We, the believers, are enthralled to the makers. They do our bidding. The dreams they dream are ours, and in their vision and voices, we belong. From this perspective, the leading lights stand out like beacons in the landscape, beaming out and beckoning to us, the effervescent nodes of a thriving culture. In this series, we will be making our own marks on this ever-changing map by pulling on individual threads and following those lines all the way back to the source. In so doing, we are making our own marks on the bigger picture, tracing a line between the points that matter most to us and making a case for the work that means everything. This is us. This is everything. We are the makers and the dreamers of dreams. The point of departure for our maiden maker's voyage all the way to the heart of the matter is this smaller island here at the intersection of O'Connell Street and Parnell Street in the heart of Dublin City. It's Monday morning, February 15th, 2021, and the traffic which gives this little island within a larger but still relatively small island its name is eerily absent as morning breaks on yet another lockdown day with little by way of action here on what was until recently known as All the World's Stage. All the World, a postal district called Dublin and the number one, D1 to you and me. Here we are, under heavy, slow-moving clouds, to talk about the art of painting with light. Photography. Mm. 
From where I'm standing, facing south towards the spire, with the twin streaks of the silver Lewis tracks arcing eastwards to my left, I can see the full extent of the streets that provided the stage and backdrop for the groundbreaking series of photo books produced by Eamon Doyle called I, On and End. I can see the whole thing from here. Not what he saw, now that the streets have been robbed of their people, but where he saw it in his own uniquely visionary way. His singular way of seeing turned the world on his doorstep into timeless works of art. The word photography also means writing with light, and in a city and country of scribes, his pen is that of a master. The story of the making of his Dublin street work and the simple twist of fate that led to the breakthrough success of the debut book and his subsequent meteoric rise to the top of the photography world is only part of the story today, however. The photographic success was of the overnight type, but the groundwork had been laid over many years of hard graft and no little toil. There are as many twists to this tale as there are points of intersection between his and my own wayward path through Ireland's musical underground over the course of a quarter of a century. The glue that holds the whole thing together is that passion which has fueled Eamon's journey the whole way. It's that of a rarer kind. So hold on tight for the long haul. There is blood and there is fire up ahead. Before we get into the chat, I'm going to take this setting of the scene back inside, out of the city centre and back to the central heating. And so the heat goes on. Did someone say talking about photography was like dancing about architecture or was that writing about music? Talking? Writing? When it comes to words about works of art, it's all a dance anyway. Uptown, downtown, crosstown and crossroads, all a dance. A dance where you have to get down on the music. Truth of the matter is, it's the pictures and the buildings themselves and the music itself that does the talking. Always. Words, spoken or written, should be handled with care around pictures and the people who make them. Apart from that, there are no rules. Robert Adams in Why People Photograph nicely summarised the problem of mixing words and photographs. If the words are stronger than the images, then the images are a failure. If the words are weaker than the images, then the words were unnecessary. Many artists simply refuse to discuss their own work, and for good reason. But from my own experience in the blood from stone transfusion business, it's very often the case that it's the very reticent that harbour the most valuable stuff to say. This is definitely true of the subject of our show today. So we approach with caution and handle with care. It pays to be cautious. It's said that a student once approached Robert Frost and asked him to explain one of his famous poems. Frost replied, do you want me to say it worse? 
Eamon told me that quote at the end of 18 hours of conversation over the four Fridays of this January just past in his flat a hundred metre dash from where I'm standing. He had graciously suspended his reticence for the sake of helping me make my work. His words. And now some more of mine. Like I said out on the street, there have been many points of intersection along our respective paths. Starting all the way back in 1994, when the videos he made with his dead Elvis partner in crime, Eamon Crudden, became a weekly fixture on the television programme I was, roughly speaking, presenting at the time, called No Disco. The DIY aesthetic of those grainy stop-motion Super 8 films were manna from heaven for us who were desperately seeking energy and craft like theirs. They became the touchstone of what our independent-minded show was all about. We're going to come back to that story presently, but suffice to say that the impact those videos made meant I followed Eamon's path in subsequent years very closely. The ins and outs, highs and lows of that wayward journey in between we'll also be getting into. But before I roll the tapes of our conversation, I just want to put into words the extent to which his work has spoken to me in recent years. In order to do that, I have to take you back two years to March 2019 and to the Royal Hibernian Academy here in Dublin, where Eamon Doyle's first exhibition is showing as part of the city's St. Patrick's Festival. It coincided with the launch of Made in Dublin, a cinematic project and book bringing all the strands of Eamon's work together with author Kevin Barry providing the words and narrative clue. It also gives us the first glimpse of the shrouded spectral figure that goes through a haunting new body of work called K, which marks a radical departure from Doyle's Dublin street work. Equal parts meditation on unresolved grieving and elegaic tribute to his late mother Catherine, the giant colour prints take up the final section of the exhibition that divides the cavernous upper room of the RHA into three. The exhibition hangs for 36 days and once smitten, I return again and again over subsequent days. The power of that show is what propelled me here to this point, straining to communicate the immensity of it all. In a nutshell, it was something truly extraordinary, a new level for the staging of a photography exhibition in Ireland, and a very special sort of homecoming. The ineffable truths that bring us to art exhibitions in the first place were supplanted here by a kind of knowing when faced with the familiarity in the strangeness of the floating world of Dublin that played out dramatically before our eyes. Photography plays with the scale of the world and seeing the world in which we lived and moved through day in, day out, scaled up into something so arresting, so powerful, was as much a jolt to the senses as it was a balm for the soul. The deep soulfulness of the images themselves and the arrangements of all the elements made for a heady mix that never dimmed on return visits and repeat viewing. 
The effect of walking through the main room with the prince was transformative enough, but downstairs was another powerful reason to believe in this work. That's where the Made in Dublin cinematic project played out on a loop across nine LED screens. Made in conjunction with his closest collaborators, Niall Sweeney and David O'Donoghue, and featuring the aforementioned Kevin Barry, it was a compilation of all the work up to that point and a portent of what's to come. Sometimes, in one of those quiet, eerie moments of the night, when the city briefly stills itself, as if to open out its sighs, you can almost hear it. You can hear it as a kind of low, insistent throbbing, almost a rhythmic sequence. And at once you'll know that it contains dark information. Eamon himself called it the end of the beginning. And it's probably as good a place as any to stall the rising word count on this introduction and start our conversational journey to the heart of the matter proper. There's a musicality to everything Eamon Doyle does and has done. That soulfulness I mentioned is, without doubt, a musical vibration. Turns out that the beat which runs through the whole thing has roots that run all the way back to Jamaica and to the sound of Bob Marley. Reverberations from the original initiation are ongoing. The what, where and when of that moment is where we began. So my brother was four years older than me um, and I guess I started sort of rummaging through his record collection when I was about nine or ten. I'm trying to think, about 1979, mm-hmm. probably a little bit later. But a lot of, a lot of metal, a lot of 70s metal, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of soft rock, I guess, early ACDC, uh, Motorhead, all that kind of stuff, which I I, I, I just didn't really kind of connect with at mm-hmm. all. But there was there was one Bob Murray 7-inch and there was one album, there was Babylon by Bus, and there was a 7-inch, but it was a 7-inch actually that, that kind of, I think I listened to first. Uh, and it was just, it was No Woman, No Cry. So I guess he would have bought that probably 1976, mm-hmm. 1977. But that was the record, that 7-inch was the record mm-hmm. that just totally, I just totally locked into. Locking into the Bob Marley groove was a baptism of blood and fire into the church of musical devotion for young Eamon. From that day forward, every encounter with music was an act of faith. As with any good congregation, word on the most blessed works spread fast among the faithful. The next big leap involved an inadvertent dive into the deep end in Barcelona. So I probably was 12, 13. I'd gone over on, a, to, on an exchange to Spain, uh, like a student exchange with my Bob Marley tapes. Mm. And uh, my friend, he's still a very good friend of mine now. We were in, there's a, there's a, there's a store called El Corte Inglés, which oh, yeah. is a big mm-hmm. Spanish sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like a... Class to Catalonia. Yeah. So we were just in the record section in El Corte Inglés and I was like buying, looking for more Bob Marley records. And he was like, well, this this guy might be good. He's kind of, he's black as well. Like, and he was mm-hmm. just pointed a Stevie Wonder album mm-hmm. and it was uh, original Music Aquarium. Wow. Which I bought at the time, mm-hmm. and I have still have it here. It's a Spanish double vinyl original music aquarium, and I brought that back. We Andrew didn't have a record player, so I wasn't able to listen to it. And I got back to Dublin, and I was that just totally blew my mind. Mm-hmm. 
So then I was like, okay, I'm also into, <laughs> I'm also really into the sky, Stevie Wonder. So yeah. I bought, I just, whatever jobs, I was also running a, actually I completely forgot, but at, this, at that time or just before that, I'd been running a puppet theater. Yeah. With my friends. Actually, I put that in the notes Yeah, there. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's something that happened, which I guess, <laughs> yeah, looking back on it now. It's all, it all kind of ties in. Yeah, come so, on, um, puppet theater. <laughs> myself and my friend are running a puppet theater in, um, so with, with, in our, my, in yeah. our garage, uh, which was quite well put together. You and know? this is we, around we were, the time of the UK reggae explosion. Well, I was 10. Oh, I know so that. And I only know that because I was, so it was 1979. So I was 10 because I, I still have the article. It was in the, the, there's a newspaper article from the Southside newspaper, the kind of first bit of press. It's amazing. It's myself and Mick. And all the puppets and the headline is these boys can pull strings and it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. And the award for most prescient local newspaper article of 1979 goes to the Southside News. The nascent puppet theatre was a victim of its own success, however, as the heat that came their way after their newspaper splash meant that the budding string pullers had to bow out before their big break materialised. But with an expensive record-buying habit now firmly established, the entrepreneurial Eamon had to turn to slightly more nefarious ways to fund his voyage of musical discovery, skipping from pulling strings to different strokes without missing a beat. I was also stealing porn mags from <laughs> when I would go to when I would go to Spain with my parents. I mean, I used to do used to steal them from the shops here. Yeah. But I mean, this is when I was like 10, 11, 12. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was the only, <laughs> the only magazine going was, it was from, from the Northern Ireland called Executive Magazine, uh -huh. which just, it didn't Executive? show, yeah, it was, it didn't show everything, but it's like, <laughs> but anyway, I was just like, it only showed the six counties. I would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I would go in and buy a newspaper from my mum and then slip a copy of wow, that week's magazine. Lucky you weren't caught. Imagine the rap. Never caught. So I had a whole bunch of, the whole collection is, and I used to look at my brother's collection of you know, yeah. magazines and he had them hidden. And what happened was we went to, used to go to Spain on holidays every year and I would steal only because you, you couldn't buy them. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I guess it was the only way you could get them. Yeah. Yeah. Like proper yeah. <laughs> magazines International that you could level, get in, yeah. in Spain. The 32 counties. Yeah. That you couldn't get, you could just couldn't get here. And then, I realized that I was like, okay, I could sell these. So I used to do as I used to, wow. <laughs> after I'd had a good look, I, <laughs> I would um, just rip them up into pages, cut them up into individual pages and sell them for, I remember selling them in Monkstown. So this is, I was still in Monkstown. I didn't, this was, this is before. So this is up until the age of 13 and made good. Actually, you know what? This is, this is probably how I was buying my records. Because I was selling them, it was fifty p. I'd sell them for fifty p a page with dirty pictures on one side, or a pound with dirty pictures on both sides, and that's what I that's wow. what I did. And it's so like you'd, selling the individual cigarettes. What a great idea! Yeah, but you'd get down. like you'd make forty pounds. Yeah, from one magazine. From one magazine, and that oh. was in like 1981, 82. The, the international so, criminal element exactly. is just so amazing that you were importing these things. The real fear was customs with your parents in Dublin airport. You packed this bag yourself, sir. Yeah. So there was, there was like, wow, like Bob Marley bootleg kind of albums yeah. on, on, on cassette and then like Penthouse and Hustler and whatever else. And uh, 
yeah, so I would bring over quite a few, maybe 10 magazines each trip. And so that was, yeah. So that's, I mean, the idea of, uh, just imagining what it must have been like at the airport. If, you know, no, absolutely. That was like absolute terror. But your early entrepreneurial, you know, I mean, your, yeah, your, your entrepreneurial spirit could easily have been dashed into something that would have been <laughs> a, a kind of a police-based yeah. hand, handcuff incident. Yes. Relax guards and guardians. Both strings and strokes were pulled with the pursuit of musical enlightenment and musical enlightenment only in mind. And who among us haven't taken the odd risk when it comes to reaching the promised land? The unlucky end up in bracelets and the charmed few at the front row of a Stevie Wonder concert like Eamon did on August 20th, 1984. It was there in the RDS that his passionate love for the Motown legend was fully consummated. Later that evening, an even more momentous event occurred. Sharing a birthday, May 13th, perhaps it was written in the same stars they were born under, that destiny would one day conspire for their paths to cross in the unlikely surroundings of the coffee dock in Jury's Inn. Perhaps the first miracle to have definitively arisen from a 15-year-old's rejection at the door of a Leeson Street nightclub, where an after-party was rumoured to be taking place. And everyone strolled in, and then once when I once I came to the door, the bouncer was just like, "No, you're not. This guy is. This guy's not coming in here." So I was I was completely devastated. And, hey, uh, I can pull strings. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the thing, the frustrating was thing was I was the only real fan, you know, really right, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, but um, but anyway, somebody had to decide to take me home and not go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was Tracy. Uh, it was kind of my brother's friend at the time. So Trace and myself walked home, kind of, I was still kind of high from the concert, but devastated that, yeah. you know, I wasn't going to go in and get mm-hmm. to meet Stevie Wonder. But we, we, yeah, so we, I guess we walked down, yeah, from Leeson Street down, down towards Balls Bridge. Mm-hmm. And this was late, certainly later than I'd ever been out. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think I would never have been in, you know, never normally been allowed out that late. Mm-hmm. We're walking back past the um, Jury's Hotel yeah. in Ballsbridge there. And Tracy, remember her saying to me, there was a place called the Coffee Dock, which oh, was no, part yeah, no, of yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was like, we're coming for a coffee. And I was like, oh, coffee, that's, <laughs> that was like super exotic. You know yeah. what I mean? I'd never had coffee in my life. Yeah. So we went in, had coffee, there was no one in the place. There was a, there was, there was a set of booths in the, coffee, in, the, in the Coffee Dock and there was a glass kind of wall uh, to the outside of the, one of the hallways, I guess, going going from the lobby up to the rooms. And we were just sitting there, kind of having coffee, talking about the concert. Nobody was there. Probably like two in the morning, one in the morning, I don't know. And who walks by, straight right past her face, but on the other side of the glass with Stevie and his entourage. <laughs> and, like, and Tracy just jumped up yeah. and ran around. <laughs> and I don't know what she said to them. Yeah. I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't really remember a hell of a lot more than just that, that kind of moment. Yeah. And, um, but all I remember is he came back, Stevie came back with, I think his brother, who was his brother, he, yeah. he was a sort of mind. I, I, I remember thinking, oh, this is his brother because it was his brother who used to walk him onto stage. Who was at his side, yeah. Always, so mm-hmm. he came back and he was just, it was just amazing and he was just so nice. And he obviously realized- She must have said- She must have told him like, you know, this, the story. this I'm with this guy, he's super fan. <laughs> 
and he was just so nice. But he took a special interest. They just, they were just, yeah, he was just so nice, and it went on for what feels like forever. Yeah, I don't really remember. It's how still kind of going long. on. Mm? <laughs> it's still going on. No, well, no, what no, no this, this is true. Yeah, feeling, yeah, because you know? it was a super big kind of moment for me, mm. um, meeting him, to be honest. And I had just, I had just painted the Hot in July album cover for art class. I right. remember on a big canvas. Mm with the beads and stuff. And he was still had the hotter than July mm. beads in him. And I would told him that I had oh, just painted this. <laughs> and he was like, oh, wow. And he was like, do you want to feel my beads? Do you want to feel them? Because they're much heavier than you probably think. And I was like, oh, wow. And it was just no this whole, way. I was like, it was insane. What a, what a beautiful man. Yeah, it was God, just, it was, it was insane. So I was like, <laughs> I was just completely stunned for months mm. after that. To be honest, in a like, sense of I was in a total sense of wonder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unlike the coffee dock at Jury's, I can testify that the same sense of wonder is still very much intact in Eamon's approach to everything 36 years later. That honeymoon period of musical initiation, all brimstone and fireworks, sparks flying in every direction, heads on fire, is a rite of passage many of us will be familiar with. While Eamon was feeling Stevie's beads in the dock, my own musical revolution was intensifying far away from the glare of the bright city lights at home in Kerry. One year later, in June 1985, our respective yellow brick roads would converge for the first time on the hallowed turf of Croke Park. Not for hurling our football championship battle, but for the consecration of four Dublin lads, known as, in short, you 2 I was there, man. REM yeah. supported. REM. It was amazing. Crazy Bill. Squeeze and REM. The alarm. Squeeze, REM. I and think in two and new opened yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And two and new squeeze, alarm. It was an amazing lineup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, let's compare notes on but that. I, I, was, I think it was the guy, It was. I think in two and new opened. Yeah, and Steve we were Wickham, all there. Steve Wickham was on, yeah. at the time was in two and We new. were all there, like of right course, at the front. I was there at the start. Right at the front. Yeah. And yeah. I, whoever the bass player from two and new came on, and you just played a note. Yeah. And I just heard the bass guitar and I was like, oh my, I was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm getting the bass guitar. I'm just getting <laughs> First note, note to self, I'm different to who I was five seconds ago. First thought, best thought. The tectonic plates were moving. Life was about to change. Things were getting interesting. Was exactly what I was thinking at that same moment, not too far away, in the safety of the stands. Ask anyone who was there that day. Ask us. All sorts of fires were lit. Some are burning still. In the book of Revelations, let it be noted, significantly, down on the pitch, young Eamon Doyle had brought his camera to the party. I have photographs from that gig. Do you? Yeah, from, from the pitch. That's mad. Yeah, so I'm I just, here, I, yeah. I just think yeah. it's, it's very, you know, we could, I mean, because I was there, right, and I was looking at it from, I was in the stand, actually, but um, ah, it's not good. <laughs> but look, I've just got a lift from Kerry, dude. You've just breezed in from bloody Blackrock or, or wherever, Sandico. But no, I'm, I, I remember walking out from there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 15, um, going on 16 uh, from like, I've never, I've been to Elton John, which is another story, but, mm -hmm. but I've never, I will never ever forget that feeling of being part of something that was like, I, I'm no longer belong to the parents I left in yeah. Kerry. I'm somebody else now, you know, like I, and that, I mean, there was something really 
incredible about the kind of the way that they brought people together in such a way, right? You it know, was, it was phenomenal for on a bunch of levels. It was that, yeah. yeah. I mean, from your, on a personal level, yeah, you're sort of like pulled into something else. You're but just, then even yeah. as from an Irish perspective, I mm. just remembered, I mean, it was just, it was, just, I think it was a big moment. I think that. Yeah, ownership think, of the culture. The, we, yeah, this is just, us. It was just, just like realizing because they had just come back from the American tour. Yeah. I just come back from you'd seen the red rock thing and all that and but, were, but also they just um, made what is now you know uh 35 years later clearly their best album yeah. you know and brian eno had just yeah. evolved their sound so much yeah, evolved yeah. it in a way that just was picking up teenagers in kerry and sandy cove and just trans transforming their lives it was so different yeah. and emotional and it was yeah i suppose it, the the feeling of ownership was a key part of what was being was going on there is that this is ours and we belong to this and you're speaking for us. Did it feel like that for you? Absolutely. And it was like, it was just hearing, well, I mean, you're only, I was only 15, so or six, yeah. what, it was 16. Yeah. So it was like, you only, you only heard so much music anyway, but it was like, it was just, you were hearing something that you never heard before. It mm. was the sound. It was obviously it was, you know, his production, the songs mm. are writing, the whole, the whole thing. It was just, just, just yet yeah, to be part of that and to kind of know that this is, yeah. It's just this feeling that this is something very new. Mm. So yeah, to be there at that yeah. time, and it was like, it was this, it was a homecoming for mm. them. And it was... But it was a homecoming that was somehow connected to space, you know, as in like, that's what the Brian Eno effect, I think, yeah. is that he kind of, yeah. you know, they traveled further and went somewhere. And those songs, that was the kind of the journey within, you know, of the big ones, there was a journey and you went somewhere and, and you didn't come, well, in my case, and I, I never came home. I was totally <laughs> taken back by that, by that concert and by them yeah. at the time. And I'm still sort of in that. Whatever that did, yeah. just the place it took you. Whatever that did is right. And to wherever it was, I think it's a given from what you just heard that we were both well and truly taken there that day. Music at its most transformative. That was the night everything changed, day one in the dream time. I went home to carry with new colours in my head and with a new resolve to get back to those bright city lights of silver and gold for good as soon as possible. Something I did within a year. In separate ways we went home, but henceforth in one direction. The camera on Eamon's shoulder was a hint of the shining path that lay ahead. I always had a camera with me. Yeah. What um, camera was that? I had a little Olympus OM10. Oh yeah, with with 35 millimeter. 35 millimeter film. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I would have From had what that. Age? Hmm? From what age? Well, I certainly had a pre-porn burn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did have. We did have. We had little toy cameras that we remember we used to use. All right, when we were like 10, 11, 12. Whatever, whatever point I would have had that camera, which I guess it was my dad's camera I took. It was my, my, my camera in college, but I was definitely using it from the age of about 14, yeah. 15. So I have lots of photographs from okay. us down in Wicklow from... Black and white or colour, both? All colour. Yeah. yeah. And then I have stuff from, yeah, like the gigs. Yeah. 85, 86. So you it was were just, bringing your camera to Yeah, the I was taking my cameras, but I, so I had it, but I wasn't just, I don't know, just because it's... I guess, I don't know, I like taking photographs. Yeah. But it wasn't with any other kind of intention. I wasn't aware of photography. 
that awareness of photography dawned a few years later upon encountering a photo book while doing his first year foundation course at Dunleary College of Art and Design. It was that year I saw Bill Brandt's book in uh-huh. the uh, library in, in college and yeah. that's what that's what like locked me in. Okay. To it's like, wow, this is this this is something else. Like <laughs> Yeah. Um and that's when I was like, Oh, I think I'm gonna try and do I think I'm gonna try and do photography. So yeah, what I decided to do was do photography and then go back and do painting. Okay. So, so that was my plan was I mean, I still want to be a painter. I still want to be a sort of musician, but I don't think mm-hmm. I have a natural flair really mm-hmm. for either. I can, pro- I, I think I can probably learn how to play instruments well enough to kind of yeah. have a bit of crack, but I don't think I have a natural flair. I do probably think I do with photography. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why I ended up sticking with it. You know? so, <laughs> probably. No, but no, but like, but yeah, when I, I applied for the, it was a two year diploma in commercial photography. So I did the two years and it was good. I mean, you learned, Learned darkroom techniques. That's yeah. kind of in terms of what we actually learned. That was about it. Um, but yeah, it was just good, good cracking college but, for but two was years there, with was all there, your mates. Within that, was there kind of moments of knowing that you know, I, I you know, that the the light bulb moment did that occur in those two years of you being somewhere, seeing a print developing, or uh, something like that? The, the odd time, I take the odd shot that maybe no. Well, actually, I did take a few shots. Now that I think about that, was still in college. Yeah, I. There was a broken lens for an enlarger in oh yeah in the college, um, which I think I may have dropped whilst I was using it. And then when I put it back on and tried it, it got this incredible effect. Mm. I don't know what it the does. Light it kind of refracting. Yeah, now you probably I don't I I've never I haven't even seen it replicated digitally mm. uh, with any of these even the plugins for mm. Photoshop. It was. Don't know what the hell happened, but the glass and the lens obviously shifted, and something happened, and you just get you just got this incredible effect. So I ended up printing my end of year mm-hmm. photographs with this lens, mm-hmm. and what I what what happened was I ended up I was like, well, I don't want anyone else to have to have, to have this lens broken lens effect, you know. <laughs> so I used to put it in my camera bag, so I kind of kept it for myself. There was loads of other lenses, mm-hmm. and then I I lost my camera bag. I left it on the bus oh. and then I went racing after the bus. I remember in Westmoreland Street and didn't catch it. Wow, man. So somebody, whatever had happened. So anyway, I lost the lens. Yeah. So I was never able to reach it. But there was an American visiting lecturer in. And when she saw those prints, she was like, whatever you're doing here, keep doing that. Wow. Whatever, I don't know what that is, but just keep doing that. Yeah. And I wasn't able to. I was like, I don't have this lens. <laughs> this broken lens in a lost bag on Dublin bus story has all the hallmarks of a Samuel Beckett, a ghostly presence stalking this story every step of the way. I love the idea too of a crack in the lens playing tricks with the light and making some kind of mysterious, inexplicable sense. That critical spark, which momentarily led to a leap of the imagination about the possibilities which the medium of photography offered, was something that would reignite sporadically and sometimes significantly for Eamon all through the remainder of college and well into the aftermath. The intention to take it further was there, and the first steps in that direction was a three-month picture-gathering foray outside the pale, which yielded mixed results. Like a popular song of the time goes, shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. Oh yeah, I wanted to do a big road trip. Yeah. Uh, 
book or project and I still want to do that. That's actually one of my plans mm. for next year is to finally kind of yeah. do that Irish yeah. road trip. But I, yeah, I did it. But I realized that I was just very shy. Mm-hmm. Like immediately, as soon as I ended up in Cork with my thing and I was seeing, but I was just seeing images everywhere. Okay. Oh, you, I, as in, but you couldn't take them. Couldn't take them. I couldn't, I couldn't break that yeah. barrier to kind of walk into the situation or talk about I mean, actually, you know, I realized in college because there was one guy who wasn't, I think, nearly as natural kind of photographer as me, but had balls yeah. and didn't mind. I would just walk into any situation and, and just, yeah. Yeah. and he'd get interesting photographs of interesting things and they'd be all right, but I would, I'd be just constantly frustrated. Going, why can't I? Waiting outside. Why can't I do that? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so so and, I still have that, but mm-hmm. I, when I got back to photography, I figured out a way around it sure. and I kind of used yeah. that to sort of. It's part of the thing. Part of it, yeah. Yeah. But um, but it was very much it just sort of stopped me doing really with getting, you know, getting into situations that I wanted. But I'd see images all the time. This idea of seeing images and not being able to take them and the way that the shyness which is stopping you can somehow be turned around into a kind of strength is an important part of the story. For various reasons, Eamon was to drift away from photography for almost 20 years soon after his road trip around Ireland. But when he picked the camera back up, a critical breakthrough was finding a way around those same inhibitions. I mean, well, in terms of figuring out a way to make photographs, yeah, <laughs> yeah, around that, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think that's probably um, it's been a really good thing, yeah, especially with the the first work that came out, yeah, I with think, I, yeah. When I think about it, I'm not really into that sort of direct storytelling thing, and yes. gonna so. It turned out that it 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 suited me way more to sort of sort of skirt around the edges mm. and just treat things just a little bit more abstractly. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah. what happened with the eye work. Anyway, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't I don't really react well to like certainly my own stuff. As soon as as soon as the the person acknowledges the camera, yeah, or there's a, there's even an awareness, yeah, even if they may not be looking at the camera at the time, yeah. Um, but if you know that the photographer is in there in the situation amongst mm-hmm. them and it's all mm-hmm. fine and all, but it, for me, it just becomes less interesting. Yeah. Just, just for me. Once there's a hint of an arrangement about it. Yes. I mean, so I don't like, I, I'm not, I'm never interested in photographing something that wants to be photographed. So yes. I'm no interest in photographing an affair or an event, mm-hmm. you know, even it's sort of like you see great fashion work and it's like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. fine, but yeah, it, it's just that element of it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the image because you can, you get really beautiful Mm-hmm. fashion images but mm-hmm. it's like no this is, this is serving a different purpose or somebody yeah. want, somebody wants something here mm-hmm. and obviously <laughs> you want something when you're out making images but I genuinely I'm just trying to make an image mm-hmm. but it's it. there's lots of other stuff going on sure lots of other stuff going on yeah. that I can't I have no idea how to articulate other than try to make the images and then and that's where we come in before bowing straight back out Like Eamon, we're about to park photography for a little while, but a little bit more about those immediate post-college years of wanderlust before we do. There were trips to London, New York, Jamaica and Mexico, as well as further travels around Ireland, all undertaken with camera in hand and intentions of being a photographer still going strong. All the while he was travelling, when he was abroad he was thinking, why aren't I back in Ireland? And when he was back in Ireland and travelling around the country, he was thinking, why aren't I back in Dublin? The answer to those questions were a whole two decades away, however. 
Once back in Dublin, the winds of change were about to blow him off the course of photography altogether. A key development was the decision to move into and renovate a derelict building the family owned on 147 Parnell Street. We more often talk of the end of eras, but this was the beginning of one. Immediately upon setting up base in 147, a chain of events took place which would lead to the setting up of the Dead Elvis and D1 record labels. Music was looming larger in the picture, and there began an unconscious drift away from photography. So it was like a squat, the building that we moved into. Um, There was a bunch of us, a couple of guys from college, uh, were were, were in in rooms. Um, I was up the top floor. And Alan Alan Lambert was one of the people who was in, and he was he was in college with me, and he was he was just making this amazing music that he had, had recorded on a, on his four track during college, yeah. and was still working on. And we decided, oh, we're going to make a film. Yeah. So so his music was the impetus for those ideas. Yeah. 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 It, it, there must have been some sketches or some audio sketches had been done, but we had decided we were going to make a movie, and what we do is we record the soundtrack first. Because it was, we were very much like into kind of Scatsy mm-hmm. and you know the mm-hmm. kind of th- th- those kind of films. We were looking at them, going, oh, "Let's do an Irish version of of mm-hmm. this." Or it wasn't so much. I don't think it was going to be such a straight rip off because I did have kind of narratives in my head, and we were looking at shooting on Super Sixteen. Oh right, at the time. So you yeah. had those plans and or those yeah, thoughts. Yeah, yeah. We were kind of looking at that, and I mean, this is when I also this is around the same time when I was starting to make the videos, the yeah. music videos. So I. With Eamon Crudden. Yeah. And this is, I think, like the first encounters, I think, with No Disco and mm-hmm. with you. But it was around about the same time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the main thing that happened was we, Alan had got the sketches down for the soundtrack. And I was like, like how are we going to record it? So I got in a quote for, I think it was £8,000 mm-hmm. to go in for whatever period of time it was with an engineer and we were probably getting overcharged. I, I don't know. I have yeah. no idea, mm-hmm. but it was 8,000 pounds was, was the, was the budget that yeah. we, what we needed to raise. So we decided to do a super early version of crowdfunding Yeah, where we actually wrote to, I, I don't know how many people we wrote to, but maybe hundreds of people anyway, mm. physical letters, stamped address envelopes, yeah. asking them all. How for, did you know so many people? Was, I don't know, but we must have, um, it was, it was friends, friends of friends, like all my relations, anyone they could think of, all Alan Lambert's relations, anybody they could think of, everyone in college, all those kind of connections, place we had in the summer in Wicklow, all those people, doctors, dentists, school teachers, everybody, all our mates, we just asked everybody for a tenner, Mm -hmm. that was the thing ask everybody for 10 pounds mm-hmm. and we would give them a credit on the film mm-hmm. and <laughs> well that's all they were going to get it's still it's on the way by the way if anybody's listening well it is well it, it well it kind yeah. of is yeah. yeah but that was the plan so well, we got i think i got ten thousand pounds in the letterbox over mm-hmm. the next few weeks in mm-hmm. 10 pound notes some 20 pound notes some 50 pound notes mm-hmm. the odd 100 pound note from mm-hmm. like i think my dentist mm-hmm. gave me 100 pounds it was like a huge amount of money mm-hmm. So we were like, holy shit. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do with all this money? I was like, I don't really feel like giving this to the guys up in the studio mm. now because like I wasn't confident. All of a sudden it became very real. It was like, oh, I don't think we, we don't really know what we're doing, mm. you know, in a studio. Uh, we have, it's not really fully formed. Mm. 
Um, I, I love the idea. It's not just the cart before the horse, but it's there's there's several things as well as the cart before the horse. Yeah. <laughs> Space for other stuff. <laughs> yeah, very much so with that. Because then it was like, oh, we have the money now. Do we want to spend it on? And it was like, yeah. no, it was overspend it in a, a yeah, studio. It was studio time. Studio time. Yeah, studio time is is it's so expensive. Yeah, and we could have just come out with nothing. Mm. So we saw an ad for. Well, Brendan Grace's manager up in Ballina was selling his recording studio. He was upgrading his mm. gear. And we saw an ad in Hot Press, or it must have been Hot Press, and it was £10,000. And he was selling the whole lot. And it was everything. And I, but I didn't know what any of this gear was, but he was selling a desk, the monitors, like a classic half-inch eight-track tape machine. It was a Tascam mm. TSR8, mm. remember, which actually turned out to be... Classic machine and a bunch of other stuff. And so with an act of good faith in the presence of grace, the studio gear changed hands and in so doing, a new leaf was turned over and chapter begun. We brought all the gear down, yeah, and we, we decided we we're going to excavate the basement in in the building in Parnell Street. Yeah. And there was a whole bunch of things going on at the time. Um, I So we had the idea to do the to do the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and Eamon Crudden who was living with me at the time, who was the guy I set Dead Elvis up with, which is mm-hmm. the kind of indie label we were doing. Um, he was like, well, listen, there's all these really good bands playing over across the way in Fibber McGee's. Mm-hmm. Why don't we see if we can get a couple of bands over yeah. to the room and start recording them? So that's how that all came about. So that, that was happening in parallel with when we were kind of learning how to use the gear. Yeah. It was great. I mean, the, the first time we ever saw it work was with Wormhole and it was fascinating. Yeah. And that whole thing, that whole session, it's, a, you know, I don't know how long we spent recording that album, but um, kind of all look back at it very fondly. On the other side of that, right, was that was just the beginning of uh, No Disco. So you might be able to tell me how it came about, but the rooftops video, the wormhole, that that. Oh yeah, remember that? Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Shot that on the on the roof. Yeah. Of one four seven, I think. The whole thing with the videos we were making was like super, like obviously zero budget. So we try mm-hmm. and make. Each video on, on one, on one, one or roll, yeah. on one or two, two rolls of yeah. Super 8, and you get yeah. three minutes on each roll. So we're yeah. trying to shoot a video with six minutes of footage. Yeah. So we'd invariably end up doing stop motion because yeah. you get away with so much. I don't know. Like we were almost just making videos every week for a while yeah. to send down to No yeah. Disco. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, on the other side was this idea that, like, probably epitomized by Dead Elvis was the idea that that the actual existence of a place to put the videos was creating work, you know. Oh, absolutely! That was the only reason we were doing them. And that, yeah, you were you were the best example of that. There were others where it was just once there was something to aim at. Yeah, people started to produce those things. It certainly gave us the impetus to kind of go on and do everything that we had done after that. It was yeah. like, oh yeah, we can make a video and uh, for whatever fifty pounds. Yeah, which was usually the cost of processing the film, and you mm-hmm. know we. Telecine it with just a, yeah. a video camera yeah. off a off a wall, so yeah. it was pretty much zero budget. That that's definitely we just had this DIY aesthetic mm. that kind of like I was like, oh yeah, okay, you can do that. And then there's this TV show that'll show them. Yeah, 
Um, and then I think it was just, it was kind of the next thing was, well, let's just, let's just record the bands. Mm-hmm. Let's start recording them. We have the gear. Yeah. Uh, and then from then it was like, well, if we have the music, why don't we start putting it out? Mm-hmm. So yeah, with the first album, I think we set up that album specifically to release the wormhole, this wormhole record. Yeah. Hearing this wormhole tune now immediately puts me in mind of the feeling of pride that we felt on the other side of the equation at No Disco that our show was becoming a vehicle for the spread of independently conceived, manufactured and released Irish music. Dead Elvis were at the vanguard of that movement. It's easily forgotten just how much of a stranglehold the record companies held over music at the time, now that their power has diminished so significantly. But the two lads were the first to do it. Wherever the curve was, Operation Dead Elvis was just ahead of it. In their wake, many followed, including our Eamon, whose rapidly expanding love of electronic music would soon lead him to set up his own techno label, D1. Pretty much from as soon as that album started, that's when I started going clubbing. So it was about a two or three year period where I was running the label, um, not becoming less interested in the music, in, in, in the kind of that Elvis thing, but it was just, it felt like, oh yeah, we're we're doing this thing, this indie guitar stuff, which mm-hmm. I like. Yeah. But the exciting part for me was like, oh, uh, just realizing you can make this and you can mm-hmm. be part of this and you can you, you know you can just be an independent label and just going yeah. and doing it yourself yeah. and but that was that was to me was as probably the most exciting part of it because this was still at the time when you know ev- all the major labels were coming you know from all over the world to Ireland looking for the next U2 and it was still very much like you were looking to the major all the bands were looking mm. to the major labels mm-hmm. to kind of go and somehow come along and discover them and release their records for them. Yeah. And we were like, well, we just, let's just do it ourselves. Yeah. Um, and that was the sort of interesting thing for me. It wasn't so much yeah. the music, although I loved, I, I loved the music, but I wasn't so excited about mm-hmm. it. But I was getting excited about what I was, the yeah. music I was hearing in the clubs. The vanguard of new sound. Well, yeah, exactly. And that thought did enter my head. It was like, oh yeah, we can do this. You know, we've done it with, dead Elvis and I was like right I'm going to do I'm going to set up a techno label here and uh, the whole thing was like I'm just going to do it myself I'm not going to get anyone else involved Mm -hmm. I I, I like the whole cottage industry thing you know just even being interested in Jamaican music Mm -hmm. specifically and kind of thinking about all the labels that came out of Jamaica and it was Mm -hmm. just this small little indie labels Mm -hmm. putting out stuff and setting up their own studios so so that was a thought. It was like, I'll, I'll run a label. So I decided to set up the label before I had any music or even knew anyone mm-hmm. who was making music. So I just put out feelers through friends. Uh, and I was feelers told... Feelers through friends is a good exactly. title for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly what I did. And Rob Rowland popped up. That's the sound of Glowcom, the very first release on the D1 label in 1995. From that initial feelers through friends method of sourcing music, the D1 family grew organically and exponentially thereafter, with a die-hard commitment and love for the music, the foundation for everything. 
With Niall Sweeney's iconic design launching a visual narrative that would build in tandem with the music, from that moment forward, when it came to the rapidly evolving canon of electronic dance music, Eamon Doyle had skin in the game. The super exciting thing about the time, about all that was, it was completely faceless. Yeah. And mysterious, and you didn't know what the hell it was that you were listening to. Yeah. You didn't know who it was, you didn't even know who the DJ was. He was playing the records, mm. let alone where the records were from. There was something happening here musically. There was, a, and I couldn't figure out what it was. You know, the whole thing was just very, very mysterious. But I started hearing, I, th- I, I guess I started hearing um, sounds and production techniques that reminded me of the sort of 80s stuff that I was into and then also Jamaican dub and I think it's just the whole using the studio as an instrument yeah you know and and, and just and recognizing the synthesizers yeah um from the 80s but using a completely different way so I was tuning into I, I knew there was something there that was grabbing me mm. just sonically but I wasn't quite sure what it was it was just even just finding out who the hell who was making these records. Yeah. Uh, and then you know you'd be you'd be dancing on the dance floor and you'd hear a record and then it would be gone and you'd receive no way of yeah. Even you have to wait till that comes around again or goes yeah. go rooting through record shops. That same gleeful excitement this new form of music elicited and the subsequent thrill of the chase to figure out what it was and where to track it down was a scenario played out in clubs on weekends and record shops the week after all over town. In this world, into which I was sinking deeper myself at the time, word of mouth was the information dual carriageway and context everything. It was super exciting and you'd know about this as much as anyone. It, so much of it is about the context of how you discover the music, Yeah, part of the appreciation of it. I think it goes, and this, this goes back even talking about all of the different sort of tribes, musical tribes yeah. that were happening in the 80s with the kind of guts and the punks and the mods and that so there's, there's there's an element of that and just kind of identifying with it yeah. and deciding yeah this is this is kind of what i'm into but also we were genuinely obsessive about the music mm-hmm. it just kind of really kind of triggered something for me about like just the possibilities of those kind of times of being opened up in such a way to an entirely different set of kind of musical rules and an, and an entirely mm-hmm. different landscape in terms of well, you genuinely felt that you you had tuned into where you were a part of, certainly when we were starting to make the records and put them mm. out, but you, just even as a sort of a, as a punter in the clubs, you were part of something that had never happened before. Yeah. And that was super exciting. Well, the music was mysterious in and of itself anyway, the kind of the, yeah. the nature of that, of what was happening. The fact that there was very few vocals, I think, mm-hmm. add, added to kind of to, to that. And it actually mm-hmm. helped to be much more, I guess, universal. Yeah. But um, it was also like, okay, how the hell do we make this music? Right. So you'd figure out, you know, I mean, you'd hear about like specific drum machines that maybe people were using or synths and you wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to get your hands on them and then you'd end up like, and I think that's part of what, when you look back at it now, and I, I think, I, I, I must have heard Simon Reynolds, the writer, talk about, talk, 
talk about this, this whole idea of misinterpretation. I won't even talk about it, i say somebody like Mark Broom over in the UK, it was a big, there was an amazing techno scene happening in, in, in London at the time, um, where they would have been listening to music from Detroit, not really knowing how to make it, yeah. and kind of missing misinterpreting it and mm. just coming up with their own yeah. their own version of it because they didn't have the same sense they also didn't have the, the they didn't know yeah. how this was being made and then they'd end up kind of misinterpreting or reinterpreting and coming up with their own their own version of it and that just happened all over the world yeah. just taking techno yeah so I mean there's so many other genres you had a Berlin sound you had a you, you had a London sound, you had a Glasgow sound, you had a, you had a French sound, mm-hmm. you had a New York sound. You had, I mean, pretty much every city yeah. had its own sound. And I think when you're kind of looking back at contemporary music, certainly contemporary recorded music, you could you can see that that's that's what happened. You had you had a group of people or group of bands in any particular city. So it could have been like. Could have been Seattle, with a lot of bands who were making music that was ended up being called grunge, yeah. or Manchester, and you had all these bands that were hanging around making music and playing, I guess, in small clubs. And then you had, you know, three or four years later, the Manchester sound, um, or in Jamaica, you had a specific sound happening. But then in, in in Birmingham, you had people making reggae, but again, not really knowing how to make it and just yeah. kind of. Kind of reinterpreting and coming up with their own sound. The point being, they had the, they had enough time yeah. to one be kind of anonymous, and you know there was enough time for a, a sound to nurture mm-hmm. that became the, the sound of that city. Yeah. And I just don't G- just think, stays, kind of, yeah, yeah, just stayed absolutely. And yeah. I don't think you really have that space anymore. Sure. Thing is, the mystery there is no more mystery. It's not possible. Yeah. Because now I can just it's I can all available all I the can, time. Forever. I can basically look up the sound of a specific room yeah. that a specific song was made in Jamaica in 1975, yeah. and I can just type it into Ableton pretty much yeah. and recreate that sound. Mm-hmm. So I can't misinterpret it anymore. Sure. Compared to what was happening in the 90s, where every six weeks there was a new genre. At least every six weeks. For obvious temporal reasons, there's been a lot of nostalgic reviews of that explosive musical period a quarter of a century ago, and this isn't one of those. But there's definitely truth in the theory that it was the last great musical revolution. That energy surge spurred an entire generation of producers and electronic pioneers into action. Now, neither Eamon nor I chose to be 51, but seeing as we are, we can both testify firsthand to the ripple effects from the force of the blow. In both our cases, it set the nights on fire and the twilight reeling. The golden thread from Tamla Motown runs right through the electronic sound of Motor City. It cannot be overstating it to say that the effect of this amazing music was to bring those faraway places much, much closer. Out of mind and in sight. D1 opened up a Dublin dialogue with the cream of the Detroit crop, which was its own reward.
This idea of there being an identifiable electronic sound of Dublin is something we'll get back to, but before that, some insights on the practicalities of living the dream. Yeah, I mean, so pretty early on, it became obvious that it wasn't. This was never really going to make us any real money. There would the same amount of people were still buying records, but there was far more records out there. Yeah, I mean, by by sort of ninety seven, ninety eight, it was just flooded. Everybody was setting up a label all over yeah. the world. Um, but we managed to hold our own. Managed to cover costs, which yeah. is which is not bad you know um but no i never nobody ever made any money out of the record sales but i said i set up the record or sorry the the club Mm -hmm. and the club kept everything going yeah it was a similar thing to we're talking about the music videos once you had it once we had a platform Mm -hmm. where we could go and play the records and so play the records that we were buying play the records that we were making yeah um and then at around about the same time that we had the club i set up a record shop yeah so that, again, the club was like a platform for the stuff that was coming into the shop, and people would hear records, and then, you know, on a Saturday night and come down, you know, during yeah. the week and buy them off us. So it was all the whole thing. I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe we can make something happen here. I wasn't mm-hmm. kind of sure, mm-hmm. but I kept probably deep down on you. I wasn't really the right person. Yeah. To, but I wanted to keep it kind of pure, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't really bother me that it wasn't going to make money. Mm-hmm. It was more important that it just kept doing good things. That commitment to purity stood D1 in very good stead. There's a whole string of releases that stand the test of time, and they didn't just make music for the clubs. For the entire period that the label was releasing records, I was on permanent watch for crossover tunes that I could play on the radio. Now, I called them radio-friendly, but only because I was also in charge of the introductions. The freshness of those sounds made a mockery of the staleness polluting the airwaves at the time. But D1's focus remained on the clubs. In terms of the dance floor tunes, there were a string of releases which rocked very hard indeed. When you set the bar high, there's always a standard to maintain, and Eamon was the perfect harbour master. Under his watch, all boats rise. Yeah, no, I definitely, the, the music stood up pretty well, pretty early on. Yeah. And we began to sort of notice that there was definitely a D1 kind of sound developing, mm-hmm. which was kind of just really interesting. I loved the I loved the whole idea of these different layers of filters that you had, where whether it was the, there was, there was so many of them, there was the record shop. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, they'd have to decide what records are going to be. There was the... There was the DJs that were deciding what records they were going to play. The most important read with the labels, the kind of record labels. It was so exciting because a record label would have its own sound. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you identity. And you'd know, yeah. But it was really, it was really great because you'd sort of like, you just, you tune into a label and you'd know, yeah, I'm just going to buy every record that comes out on Strictly Rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, or Underground Resistance or wherever. And so the label's sort of sound was as 
as important as the artist's sound. Yeah. It was just this other other kind of filter that was there. Yeah. But and they they started to sort of drop away quite a bit with the onset of digital. Yeah. Um, where the label didn't become so important anymore. The artists could just kind of put up their stuff, and it was just this yeah, yeah just this huge kind of massive noise. It was really difficult to figure out how to kind of navigate yeah. and. Again, just slightly less interesting. Mm -hmm. Just like his feeling for the photo book as a tangible object later on, when it came to his label and the art of DJing, the break from vinyl to digital was a key point of rupture in the spell being cast under Eamon's watch. I know it's supposed to be about what's coming out of the speakers, but I still haven't gotten over that and it's still not. And I'm. It's part, again, it's part of the context of mm. finding the music or just how it's been played or how it's been performed. Mm. And there, it just, there just is something interesting about that. There's a, there's a, there's a tension there mm -hmm. when somebody's actually mixing records. Mm -hmm. I don't care mm -hmm. what anyone says to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's an old, it's cli so cliche. Just even to say this now, like, is it something you were saying 15, 20 years ago? Absolutely, but yeah. it's, so I don't really know even technically what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Me neither. But something's happening. Okay, but just, you know, just I guess, the, the, you something's know, happening. connected in, into that, all of that stuff that you've been saying about the magic and the mystery yeah. is that equation, that, that physical thing that happens with the needle on the record. Absolutely. And that's part of, it's, it's yeah, it, it, it's, that, it's that physical, um, it's that unbroken physical chain. Mm-hmm. That would, and you become very aware of it when you're when you when you sit in on a cut mm -hmm. when somebody's cutting mm -hmm. the you know the virgin lacquer mm -hmm. you know in the in the cutting plant just you could become very aware of the physical process of you know the music's been made it's coming out of a tape machine it's been amplified mm -hmm. that's that's pushing that's vibrating the needle mm -hmm. physically which is cutting down into the groove mm -hmm. You know, so the deeper it goes, I mean, obviously, so it's depth that determines the treble and the mm -hmm. bass, the white, it, 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 it cuts across the width and you're just very aware of the sort of physicality mm -hmm. of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a flip. It's, a, it's just the, it's the reverse of that. Then when it's been played out in the club, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a physical piece of mm -hmm. plastic vibrating a needle, which has been amplified through speakers, which is coming out and it's, you know, the, the yeah. vibrations are hitting your ears and there's no... I mean, it was just so exciting. We were like, there was no, there's no kind of, there was no digital intervention. Yeah, because that, you know? that, that thing that you say, that that tension, part of involved in that physical equation is the fact that it is, there's a connection and it's a tactile thing, the needle on the record again, you know. And it can skip and it can, yeah, yeah. no, I, absolutely. Uh, and it's something that I, it, it's something, there's a parallel with photography for me, for sure, the, the, the difference between analog photography yeah. and digital photography, where digital there's a break in that. I mean, it's it's even more interesting with photography, that physical, that direct physical connection. And it's one of the reasons why you get this sort of, like, you get, like, get this emotional reaction to photographs. You see like analog silver prints, you see, you know, on, on a gallery wall because it's, there's a direct, there's a direct sort of physical link between the, person in the photograph if it's a person or whatever the subject is because it's real light that's been reflected from them hitting silver on a on a negative so it's mm -hmm. it, it, that which is just developed and into into a negative and then 
real light has been projected out of yeah. the negative onto yeah. silver on the paper mm. and then real light has been reflected off that paper into yeah. your eyes and it's just this there's this direct you feel this connection with the person in the photograph or in the yeah uh, the, the building or the tree or whatever or whatever it is that you don't get you just when you're aware that there's there's a sort of digital cut mm-hmm. in that link yeah it just changes I, it's, I guess it's only when you know it and it's part of it's certainly part of the magic for me um, in photography is that yeah is that for me it feels like there's a direct physical connection between me and the person mm. in the photograph and it's similarly with 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 vinyl and it's something that I kind of lost and become kind of aware of with the, and I know it shouldn't mean I, I know it shouldn't matter and it probably doesn't matter to loads of people but Again, it's 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 similar to the context of how you're how you're discovering and how you're listening to the music. It's a really valid part of the experience mm. and the appreciation of it. It's not just the music. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's you ask anybody, you know what I mean? Any 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 teenager who was into the cure or into or was into sex pistols, it's not just the music, do you know what yeah. I mean? There's so much other stuff going on. Context, context, location, location, etc., etc. In an age where we are increasingly digitally cut to bits from dawn till dusk, that directness of connection is an important concept easily relegated to second fiddle amidst all the noise we are bound to endure in this overheated, cacophonous world we live in at present. We're going to be getting into more detail on how that works for Eamon in his photographic practice shortly. But before we close the book on the D1 chapter, there's another important moral in the story stroke sting in the tail. Eamon's finely tuned ear for what's popularly known as a banger saw him release an EP of tunes by Dutch producer Baz Braun in 2004. For a Dublin show in Crawdaddy that Eamon had put on as part of death, he came up with a brand new moniker for the occasion and a good one. Fatima Yamaha. With its earworm hook and tantalising gradual build, one of the tunes, What's a Girl to Do, became a localised dance floor smash without ever getting off the ground elsewhere. The label mogul takes up the story. That was the only record. I didn't have contracts with anybody, yeah. you know. Yeah. So we just didn't bother. But then the Fatima Yamaha one, that would all happen with him and he was all cool. And then his agent got involved and his agent, he said, no, you're only getting this for 10 years. I was like, okay, 10 years seems like yeah. forever. So I was like, okay, no problem. And then about, about eight years in or nine years in, I started getting, people started asking me about the record. Right. Like how? People online were looking for it, and then people were emailing me, going, "Would you ever release this again?" And I was like, "Was there something happening with this record?" But I was, I was already in my photography head. Mm. Okay, okay. So this would have been 2014, mm-hmm. I think, which is when I first put out my first photo book. Yeah. So I was sort of half there and half not, but I was like, "There's something happening here." So I remember just trying to get through to Baz, Fanamiyama had gone, would you be into me putting this record out again? I think I should, I think I should give this another chance and just n- never got any reply from him. Contacted his manager, nothing back. 
and just didn't get any reply. I was like, okay, so I kind of forgot about it. And then the next thing I heard, I was at some film, outdoor film thing somewhere, and a mate of mine was like, what's the story with uh, these deck mantle guys putting out the Falamiyama record? I was like, what are you talking about? And he's gone, it's just being released by deck mantle in, Ger- in Holland. Yeah. There's no fucking way. And I looked it up and I was like, fuck's sake, like the exact same record. Follow me, Amy, what's a girl do? So I remember mailing and Bows going, what's the story, man? He's putting out there and he's going, yeah, yeah, sorry, but uh, it's a slightly different mastering. So, you know, you've got the original. I was like, oh, fuck you. Fast forward to February 8th, 2016, and the tickets for Fatima Yamaha's District 8 show are at such a premium that he does a matinee show. Just to put that into context, the words rave and matinee had never appeared in the same sentence before. Eamon's at the side of the stage, watching the spark he had lovingly lit fireball into a raging inferno. The eye of the hurricane is meant to be the calmest place, but it sure gets a little lonely in there sometimes. The D1 tail has so many more strands, but for the sake of the story, we're bound to move on at this point. Direct responsibility for the biggest dance tune of 2015, arising from true faith and devotion to the cause expressed 11 years earlier, is probably an accurate enough summation of the joy and the pain of it all. D1's role as the most active and visible exponent of underground electronic music in Ireland in the white-hot decade of the form's heyday is beyond reproach. From 2001 onwards, the formation of the Dublin Electronic Arts Festival cemented Eamon's pivotal role in the community. Though it started out as a club-focused event, DEF quickly broadened its scope to take in a lot more than techno. The very first DEF event was Crash Ensemble doing a lecture in Emma. In the in the chapel in Emma about like music concrete or whatever, mm-hmm. so that was that was it was a perfect start, and yeah. it was low, there was a lot of ravers at it. It was uh-huh. brilliant on yeah. a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot of people here that would never be here at this mm-hmm. gig if mm-hmm. we hadn't have. Which is the whole intention right there at the very beginning. The intention, yeah, and I was pretty much. It, it was of... called Electronic Arts Festival, but like. If there was anything plugged in at the gig, it, it was it was valid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Whether it be a mic or something, it was yeah. you know. So we had a lot of acoustic music. We had traditional music, we had traditional Irish music. We had like Japanese traditional dancing. Mm-hmm. We had all sorts of stuff over the years. But so that was the idea was to just kind of and it generally just reflected again kind of my interest initially, mm-hmm. and then all of our interests mm-hmm. in all sorts of other stuff. This wide-angle approach to programming and diamond-hard commitment to quality meant that DEF immediately stood out in 2001 as a much-needed antidote to the depressingly bland and corporate music festivals that were increasing in size and number at the turn of the millennium. Adding considerable creative weight to the whole project was Niall Sweeney's bold and brilliant design. It blazed like a comet from another planet right from the start. We just got an amazing reaction mm-hmm. straight away, mm-hmm. like straight away. 
Uh, and then so a big part of it was was Niles' design. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really interesting and people still people still tell me they have all of the oh, D1 yeah. or all of the deaf programs. Mm -hmm. And it was like just tons of like really small obscure stuff, mm -hmm. you know, with not, not really a lot of big headline acts. Throughout those eight years, DEF provided a platform for electronic artists to showcase their work alongside their peers. We keep coming back to that word, context, but this is exactly the right setting for the presentation of new work that needs to find and grow an audience. The existence of such platforms fosters work. A key part of the programming was the collaborative element. I can testify firsthand to how that worked, having made a live picture show at Triapcano in the National Gallery for the 2008 edition. Keeping open the channels for these branches to intertwine are a vital part of the lifeblood of a culture. The foundations laid by DEF have been built upon in recent years by independent ventures like Dublin Digital Radio and the Open Ear Festival on Shirkin Island. Critical community endeavours that work from the ground up and directly against the forces of cultural commodification, which is the ultimate threat to all buzzes everywhere for all time. Part of the challenge for DEF was creating awareness of the very existence of this music in official circles. Taking leaps of the imagination in the arts in Ireland involves a lot of rearguard action. The slow, painful process of climbing up the funding ladder had only just started to bear fruit when the walls and a whole pile else came crashing down. We had just got to the point where we were starting to get, I think we had gotten the first Arts Council grant was 5,000, and I think we got 70,000 that year. Mm -hmm. And then the crash happened. So. We lost all of our funding. Yeah, going into two thousand eight. Yeah, so we just decided that we would do the final year with zero budget and with just an all Irish lineup. Yeah, <clears throat> so that was the final death, which is death oh nine, and that was actually one of the best deaths. We had two hundred events on over yeah. two weeks and with zero budget, and that's when we did the white noise poster. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just amazing, and it was really, like, liberating to do that poster. It was mm. like, where well, we didn't have any sponsor to keep happy. Or, yeah. And we were never going to be that anyway. That same white noise poster was a prescient touch and an appropriate precursor to the recurring system overload that is now our daily digital overdose. But it was symptomatic, too, of Eamon's inner thoughts with frustration at the prevailing conditions on the rise as energy, as well as the economy, downturned. I mean, one of the, I mean, Def, I ended up being a frustrated artist. That's the end, the, ultimately what happened with Def with yeah. me was like, well, what happened was uh, in 2008, there was the Arts Council called in all of the festival directors for urgent emergency meetings because the world economy collapsed yeah. and what were they going to do? Yeah. There's no money, da 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 da, and I just I was sitting there, and it was obviously it was terrible news. The funding was gone, but I was like, "What the fuck am I doing here? I'm an arts administrator. How mm -hmm. the hell did I end up being an arts administrator?" The fight for funding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had never intended to be. I wanted, you know, I you know I had an artistic drive mm. always, but never was ne never really got it out during the label. I was I had made some music mm -hmm. with the label, and it took me years to before I, I, I would have released it myself because was, I was sort of terrified of 
perception of sort of vanity publishing mm. and around like that, which is just ridiculous. Mm. But anyway, that was so I think it was thirty-seven records. Yeah, I released in D1. Thirty-seven. I yeah, the first record. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, sorry. The first record that I put out solo was thirty number thirty-seven. I oh, think. All right. Yeah. Or maybe right. even forty. What, I kind what, of, what was that one called? I think it was called "Come Down on the Music." Okay. Which is a term from some Irish dancing in Kerry and uh, from the nineteen thirties. Oh, some really? some phrase that some Irish dancer coined where you have, you have to come down on the music. It was oh, like yeah. this. <laughs> so it was like, and I just <laughs> love that expression. Oh, I was great. like, well, I'm going to call that. <laughs> <laughs> And with Come Down on the Music, D1 release number 36, say the fact checkers, the We Are The Makers halftime curtain falls on Eamon's extended journey into sound. From No Woman No Cry through Dead Elvis, D1 and Deaf via Parnell Street, Detroit and Space. From this point forward, the lights were gradually coming back on in the long dormant picture show. Musically, it was more the skipping of a beat than an ending, however. Experience gained in festival management and every aspect of musical production and distribution would prove invaluable when it came to publishing his work in the photography world he was about to re-enter at the deep end. One of the great things about doing the, doing the label, I pretty much involved ourselves in nearly every layer of the music production and distribution yeah, kind of industry. All those links in the from chain. From making the records, yeah. or from making the music to making the making the actual physical record to owning a record shop, mm-hmm. even running a club. Yeah. We set up a distribution company. So, and then dealing with press and, you know, uh, well, this is obviously all pre-internet, but the thing that I realized, well, I, was, I, guess, I guess I just kind of guessed it when I, just, when I did start making photo books 20 years later was that I was like, well, it's got to be relatively similar to, you know, selling records, selling photo books. And it turns out that, yeah, it, it was, it was just all, it's all the same layers of people. Sure. Yeah. So I had, I hadn't really done any photography work, um, right up until the late, maybe 2009, 2010. Yeah. Nothing. Pretty much no, nothing, no. So, um, yeah. There's, yeah, one of the like one of the one of my regrets is that we, or, I've no photographs of it, any, yeah. any of our activity for twenty years mm-hmm. in music. Mm-hmm. It just simply because I didn't have a camera in my hands. Yeah, and no, nobody, I, I, nobody I else well, did. Well, you know what? We all have those regrets, but I also think it's kind of almost necessary, maybe. You know. But I'm glad we didn't have them in the clubs yeah. <laughs> and at some of the parties afterwards. But yeah, yeah. at the same time, it would have been nice. I would have loved to have images of the bands recording in the studio and those recording in the studio, Definitely. and even those hanging out in the record shop. And sure. Yeah. So it's just it's it's very obvious. Well, it's, it was, at least we can uh, describe it in a podcast. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and then yeah, I was just started to. I mean, I I, I had seen the um, seen the BBC series The Genius of Photography, mm-hmm. and um, just reminding myself how much how much I love photography. And the other the other thing is what happened was working on music for twenty years. I just stopped. I lost interest in music. Yeah. Especially running the the festival. Yeah. Um, was it because sort of, of that, do you think? Or? Because it was a job, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never listened to as much music as I do now. You yeah. Now that I've stepped away from it. Right. Stepping away from music and event management meant Eamon's entire focus and energy was poured back into making images again. 
And for the first time ever, the pursuit of picture making became a full-time job. It started with a sharpening of the tools in the shape of one significant gear change. I bought myself a Leica camera and I never had one. It was yeah. the, the kind of classic Leica rangefinder. Yeah. And I was that just that just changed everything for me. And I was back out. I pretty much picked up where I left off 20 years previously in yeah. Dublin, in the same area around Dublin 1. Yeah. I just started, I, well, actually what happened was I rec, I just recognised that I was just falling straight back into the same, the, exactly the same kind of photographs that I had been taking, you know, previously. Yeah. Which is fine, but I was like, a- okay. And that being? It's just a classic kind of street black and white photographs and I was shooting on film. And black and I was white set, film? Black and white film and I set up the dark room and I was kind of, and it was, it was fine, but I just felt like it was... It was just moving quite slowly. Mm-hmm. And I think it was that point when I had decided, okay, I'm going to just have to change something up. And I didn't even know if it was a conscious decision, but I did two things. I started shooting in colour and I forced myself to shoot vertically because I never really shot vertically before. I'm quite, it was quite uncomfortable for me to, mm-hmm. it was kind of unnatural for me to turn mm-hmm. the camera around and shoot vertically. Previous to that turnaround, where you you start to to change to vertical, like what what's what's your position? Where's the camera, and how how you, how do you kind of hold yourself on the street? I think I thought I wanted to be photographing in a certain way, yeah, which was maybe you know seeing seeing people that I might want to photograph, going up to them, maybe approaching them, talking to them, hanging out with them, photographing them, yeah. Um, and that is a way to work. And some people just work wonderfully that way. Yeah. Uh, and I've done that. I did that in college a couple of times and actually got some some good work. Yeah. But it's it's not, it wasn't, it's not the kind of work that I wanted to do. And I I didn't really realize that until I started yeah. forcing myself to, yeah. to, to, to make images on the street, back, back on the street again. So I think I kind of use my, just that kind of natural inherent shyness. Yeah. I was trying to figure out how can I photograph here without, <laughs> you know, without engaging yeah. with people. But anyway, for me, it was the kind of work that I really loved was people like Joseph Fidelka. Yeah. And people like Bill Brandt and to a certain extent, say Henry Carty Bressemer. It was just a little bit more minimal. Yeah. The kind of work and a little bit more pared back. Right. Um, and there was something that I found myself then trying to do was like to try and, and, and it's, it's what happened when I started to shoot those eye photographs. Yeah. Um, well, the photographs that became the book called I, um, where I just, and again, I think it was just, it's, it's a subconscious thing, but, um, I think what you're really trying to do is pare down. There's so much noise on the street. Yeah. And I, I, there's something I've always thought about, and I actually read somebody say, some, one of the great photographers, who I don't know who it was, say something very similar recently, but it's something that I've always thought. I, think, I guess coming, coming from a painting background, the, the big difference between painting and photography is that, you know, you, you actually start with a blank canvas when you're painting mm-hmm. and you kind of add into it. But with photography, you're, you're starting with a completely full canvas. Mm-hmm everything is there in front of you and it's really about pairing away and trying to is trying yeah. to trying to kind of get rid of as much of the noise yeah. as possible yeah on the street and pairing away and just seeing how little you can get away with showing yeah. 
yeah really while yeah. still kind of get into the kind of essence of whatever it was that you were yeah drew you to point your camera in that direction in the mm -hmm. first place mm -hmm. and that definitely started to happen when i started to photograph those people from behind mostly yeah and i started to take a very graphic kind of a graphic approach to it yeah for the best available description of this graphic approach to images and the human shapes and introspective worlds that comprise them, I'm going to refer to this beautiful essay, Wavelengths, which Niall Sweeney wrote for the Maffrey Foundation compilation of Eamon's work. We see the city's inhabitants manoeuvring through a series of obstacles in unknown solo performances of a collective unconscious choreography. We see the city flattening out in front of them, but also becoming them, or rising up around them like false perspective stage settings. We twist and turn and dive in a multiplicity of dimensional viewpoints. We stand still with them. We get up close. We see far away. We look outwards and inwards from behind their backs. We take their awkward position. We follow their gaze out to what lies ahead as they stride past us like giants. I was always drawn towards O'Connell Street mm -hmm. and Parnell Street on a, in, in around this area. I was never really able to photograph successfully across the bridge. Yeah. I lived on this street for a good 20 years. 20 yeah. years, yeah. 25 years, and I was really tuned into the street. Mm -hmm. um, some some photographs happened with just one frame, where I'd turn around and just see something in a photograph, but then some I would, I would actually follow somebody for, yeah. you know, five or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and regularly you'd, you'd follow somebody getting off the bus up on Frederick Street and walking all the way down to the GPO and going in and buying one stamp Mm -hmm. and posting one letter and walking all the way back up and then getting on the bus and going again. And it was so just, the GPO is this amazing focal point in in Dublin, yeah. inner city, north inner city, yeah. um, for a certain type of elderly person who feel, you feel like they could have been there a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. It was just a timeless. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of those people that I've ended up photographing, I was, I was showing these photographs to my dad when I was making the book and he turned out he recognized loads yeah. of the people in the photographs. Not all of the people made it into the book because he ran a bingo hall mm -hmm. just around the corner oh, yeah. for 40 years. So most of the, look, just turns out I wasn't specifically going looking at photographing elderly people, but that's just what happened. A lot of those women that are in those photographs, my dad recognized and would have been regulars in his bingo yeah. Yeah. hall. Mm -hmm for, you know, the sort of previous 20 or 30 years. Yeah. So that was a really interesting yeah. kind of connection, which is that's, that's the reason that I'm, I was up photographing here in the first place. That timelessness in the eye work is made of gesture, texture and tone. Back again to Niall's words in Wavelengths. We inhabit the headscarves, the bags, the coats and shoes that they inhabit the concrete they inhabit, the volumes of colour and the shapes they pull in the hard Dublin light. And almost all are on the move, each to their own version of the beat. Though there are life-worn faces and apparent hardships, these are not portraits nor stolen characters. There is no judgement. We are them, 
embraced within the entropy of scattered objects, the pulled threads, the many cuts, the rounded corners, the rubbed fabric of it all, and even in the grain and pixels in the code of the image itself. And all of it, all of us, bound together by the same forces that keep our feet on the street, an image in our heads and the clock ticking. I still don't even really understand what the hell's going on right. with a photograph. So um, do you think that you have the picture in mind or is that, how does the kind of, how does it feel in the moment? Are you kind of, do you know when you know or, or how does that work for you? Um, you certainly know pretty much when you've taken an image that is probably going to end up being, being used. Pretty mm -hmm. much nearly always now. Right. I think the, with the nature of of street photography, it doesn't it doesn't really fit very well with you know a kind of a preconceived project, a preconceived idea. So the whole the whole nature of it is that you're kind of you're kind of going out there and and seeing what the world throws up at you. And it's very similar to um, how we would approach making music, especially electronic music, mm. where you're just all you can really do is set up a certain set of conditions. And then it's really about recognizing something when it happens. So in the studio, you've got, okay, I'm going to use this drum machine. I'm going to, you know, maybe use this effect unit. I'll, 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 I'll press go here. And then you just let it happen. And then it's, you, you recognize something when it does happen. And it, or it, it, you, and again, it's a lot of the time it's pairing away things. Yeah. Um, and it's very much like that on the street where you go, okay, well, you know, you've got a roll of black and white in your camera and you've got a certain camera and a certain lens and you, I'm going to, place myself in this situation and then it's all you can do mm -hmm. is see what's thrown up at you and that doesn't mean that just because it's not it's, it's not preconceived that there's nothing going on in the photographs or in the images because everything feeds into it yeah uh from you know whatever book you might have been reading last night or film you saw or yeah. argument you had or it, it's it, it all feeds into why you're even there in the first place yeah. and what draws you to specific Sure. person or place or colour and then really interesting stuff starts to happen. It's the closest thing that, that, that I've ever got to kind of any kind of meditation for sure is and it doesn't happen for very long you might get a you might get an hour of most where you feel like you're absolutely in some kind of zone yeah. It's usually probably, I would suspect, probably it's probably shorter than that. You only become really aware of it when you come out, when you're knocked out of it. And you're kind of like, you just, all of a sudden, you're not that interested in being out here anymore. Right. But you realize that you really were half an hour ago. Back in the were, room. <laughs> yeah, you were somewhere else. So yeah. that's, so that's. So is it a kind of a, you know, a, like, okay, for want of a better term, a kind of dream time in that you're, you're, you're looking at it differently because now you're in that zone, you're in that space. Yeah, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't happen every time you go out. For absolutely not. Uh, it'd be great if you could switch it on. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even know that you get all your best work during that time. It's okay. just that's when you're 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 just in that zone. But I don't. Um, I suspect it doesn't necessarily correlate. But there's lots of things that are really interesting about being out in the street, and that's one of the reasons that you're out in the street is because that's where everybody is. Yeah. Right. You know, and I've spoken about this with Niall a lot as well. And I mean, I, I, I just as I don't consider myself to be a street photographer as such. You know, I mean, like if, if I could walk into people's houses 
you yeah. know, yeah. unbeknownst to them or not, and, and photograph them in their houses or in their work, that's, I would absolutely do it. It's just, that's where everyone is, they're out in the street. And that's also where you have... <laughs> I, I like that idea. But that's it. But that's also where you have nearly all of your human encounters is out in the street. The mm. vast, vast majority of of encounters that you have are out on the street. Now, they're just these brief kind mm-hmm. of urban encounters that you might have, and it might be just a split second look at something, but that's where the vast majority of them happen, mm-hmm. right, especially if you live in the city. Mm-hmm. And that's where I have nearly all of my strongest emotions. Apart from like, you know, something that might be happening very specifically in my personal life, but on a day-to-day level, mm-hmm. nearly, nearly all my sort of strongest emotions are happening out on the street, whether mm-hmm. that's just total disgust or absolute lust or, you know, <laughs> just just really pissed off or jealous yeah. or, you know, feeling insecure. That's nearly all happens when you're out and about. Yeah. It's, it's a very highly, highly charged, if you're tuned in, yeah, you know, uh, what, 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 to the does world. The, does the, the camera gives some kind of legitimate or legitimacy? I don't know, it's the wrong word, but it does change that kind of. The camera kind of puts you in a different position. Well, it it does, but not in the sense that it's not like the classic. You know, you kind of hide behind the camera, mm-hmm. like a class say a war photographer would. You know, sort of hide behind the camera and then they could feel like they could walk into any situation yeah. or if you're walking into any other say situation where you might be photographing a bunch of people and you're encountering them but you use the camera as a sort of buffer between you yeah. and them that's usually when people are aware yeah that you so you you're not really using the camera as a kind of buffer yeah but you are using it as a way to process I mean, I don't know, it sounds like bullshit, but I guess it's something that's happening. Maybe processing the word. I, I Most of the time I'm using it just to kind of hang on to life and memories. and not, not me- Everything's so fucking sad all the time. Yeah. Because everything's just disappearing all the time. That's mm. my, that's the other emotion yeah. that I have most of the time when I'm, you know, just generally in life is like, oh, this is all disappearing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, every moment. And... It's just the one way that you can kind of grab onto it and hold onto it. Yeah. Even if you're, maybe you're not always going to look at it. And I just, yeah, I just get very sad about it all. Uh, and it's, it's one way of, I guess, sort of fighting kind of death. And But it's, yeah. it is death in itself. Do you know what I mean? This is so it. and it's also, all, it's all that stuff is going on as well. All, you know. fo- all photographs are memento mori as such, you know, absolutely, they, everything yeah. they're, is... Uh, they're absolute proof that something isn't around anymore. Exactly. And I, I, love, know, what, so. I love the way Niall put it in, 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 um, in the book. He's just saying about, you know, that's the thing about the trick in the speed of light is that it's like, it's just always looking back. It's, absolutely. it's just... Yeah. It's devastating, the whole thing, yeah. you know, <laughs> really. <laughs> Absolutely devastating, the whole thing. There's a couple of key points here. This idea of making images as a way to hold onto something in a disappearing world is important. The spectre of death is everywhere in this way of seeing. It's unavoidable. But the medium which allows you to see it so starkly can also be a means with which to confront it. There's no stopping the march of time, nor slowing the speed of light. But with the power of the image, we can at least press pause momentarily. 
As we will see in a little while, Eamon went on to make profound photographic and cinematic meditations on personal loss and grief in the K-series and the film X. But before we get to those, we have to go back to that moment just before the Big Bang. It's March 2014. Eamon had the first collection of his street work ready to go. He takes up the story. When I released our first book, actual straight street photography seemed to have been fallen out of fashion. Yeah. Um, certainly in the art photography world. So when I released a street photography book, it's possibly why it jumped out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I probably wouldn't have put out a street photography book if I had been so aware. <laughs> yeah. Of the fact that yeah nobody's really putting out. It wasn't a great time for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of fed into it a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I what was important was that I got something out of it. So that was, I was kind of, was happy enough myself because we made the book and I really liked it. And I think it's produced really, really beautifully. The print, printing is great. So I was happy with it anyway, or mm-hmm. myself. And then it was just interesting to see what the reaction would be. Hello, hardcore street people. Take a look at this book, very small edition, self-published by an Irish photographer, beautiful printing and great images. I am sure it will sell out quickly. On top of this, the simplicity and directness of the images is brilliant. You heard about it here first. With that single sentence of 23 words, Martin Parr made all the difference. The iBook sold out immediately. More importantly, momentum from the endorsement meant thoughts could turn instantly to making a follow-up. As momentous as that breakthrough was, joy was short-lived and tempered by the horror of what was to follow. On the day of his consecration in photography, Eamon's personal world was struck by a very different kind of lightning. I think I sold out nearly that day. And this was just this whole thing. It was, it was just a crazy day because my, it was the same day my mom got diagnosed with cancer and was told she had to go in and have chemo. So this was this whole other thing that was just being pulled off in another yeah. direction. But so, in and the space a, of in the space of twenty four hours, yeah. Because I remember having that was my mum had asked me to come out to her that morning, and that's when we went out. I no, actually I brought her into the hospital later on that morning, and that's when that and all, that's when she found out too. Yeah. So that was and that's when I found out. So that was just yeah, it was just this kind of horrendous kind of thing that <laughs> kind of happened. Yeah. On the same day. So look, look. I, I mean, I, but it was kind of um, yeah. It was. It was great that the photography thing had happened because that was something that was just great. It was something that she kind of, kind of latched onto, mm-hmm. and um, it was just it was it was just really good for me. Yeah. Just thinking about it, going purely selfish terms. Yeah. <laughs> over the next few years, that you know they got to see something happening, mm-hmm. um, and for as well on my mom because I had done twenty years in music and she was just constantly going. You stop doing music. You just should really, you know. I think you should really get back to doing photography. I think that's where you, you know. So this was this was an ongoing thing for really? twenty years. So it was just really nice that this thing that this happened at the same time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, <clears throat> it was just a, it was a, it was kind of super highly charged few days. The synchronicity of those two earth-shattering events occurring within hours of each other defies belief, but simultaneously adds credence to the idea that life is precious and fleeting and for the living and the instant in which it can change can occur in the time it takes to shoot a single frame. 
the instantaneous success which immediately followed delivered Eamon a lifeline to the blast zone of immense personal grief. In customary style, he used the acclaim to leverage his way to immediately set about making the follow-up. But obviously selling the first book was great because I knew then, even though I didn't know what the reaction would be to the second book, I knew at least that people would look at it mm-hmm. because of the first book. Yeah. So that gave me the confidence to kind of go and make make a second book. But all the advice, well, definitely, well, certainly all the vocal advice was like, oh, well, now you've got to really think about it and don't do don't do another book now for like three or four years. Yeah. And you've really got to think about this. This is just difficult second, second album, album and all syndrome. this kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. I was just like, no way. I want to get like this, another book out as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. It's the same, it was the same with, um, with music making. And I remember one thing I learned from watching other producers was just, no, just keep finishing. Mm-hmm. Keep finishing. You're not going to, you won't learn, you won't learn anything from something until you've finished it. And, probably put it out into the world yeah then you'll really know if it was any good or not yeah but you learn from that and and also because i felt like i was catching up it was like damn i could have been doing this 20 years ago yeah and you're just constantly where you're just getting a bit older and you've you're only starting so yeah and that's still kind of the point i'm kind of at now where i feel like i've just it's just the end of the start so <laughs> yeah. time to move on but there was definitely, there's a, there's a kind of element of, um, there's an urgency. That feeling of playing catch-up gave Eamon's determination to follow the success of I as quickly as possible fresh impetus. It wasn't so much a matter of seizing the day as the moment. Typically, both were swiftly apprehended. Never one to repeat himself or rest on laurels, with the second book on, Eamon presented a radically different perspective of a whole new set of players on the exact same stage and setting. But anyway, interestingly, it's, it's the same streets and it's the same time. Mm. It's the same moment, more or less. It's within a kind of couple of years on the same, you know, for the most part, two streets. It's mm-hmm. Parnell Street on Ocon Street. Yeah. The eye work did define itself first and happen first and then I decided to finish the first so then when I when I when I finished that I did make the decision then the conscious decision to kind of go okay for this next work I will turn the camera back around on its yeah. you know kind of horizontally and I'll shoot in black and white and I'll shoot from in front yeah and that's primarily what I do it was just to kind of push myself out of the eye work yeah and just not be repeating myself mm-hmm so the, the 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 eye work was very kind of singular and kind of introspective, yeah. You know, and um, these sort of solitary characters. Where with the other work, just by turning the camera around and yeah. shooting from below, the city just seemed to open up, yeah, a lot more. Mm-hmm. And also then with the the people in the photograph, it was very much like, well, this is the new, these are the people who are coming into the city now that weren't here before. So that's the difference. That was the kind of like, this is, this is now how Dublin has changed so much. When I told you at the start about those repeat visits to Eamon's exhibition at the RHA and the effect the work had on me there, the strongest impact came from these black and white images from on. They were the biggest prints in that vast room, but their power wasn't determined by scale alone. The vibrations of location are so strong in these pictures that there's a palpable sense of movement in the stillness of the frames. 
The introspection of the eye work has been dispelled completely. A city in flux, shaped by its people in full flow. The dramas are much more environmental and the characters move through the scenes with choreographic grace. This cinematic sense of motion billows in glorious Dublin light. One thing is I nearly always photograph in bright sunlight. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's one of the things that determines when I go out. Mm-hmm. I tend to only photograph when the sun is out and I'm going to have to learn how to photograph when it's raining. Yeah. For, for maybe two or three years there, it was like really bright and sunny all winter. I think I had three or four years of really nice, right. bright winters, actually. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I've just noticed we haven't had quite the same mm-hmm. for the last kind of couple of years. Yeah. So, um, but there's a there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of clarity in the air in the wintertime that you don't quite get in the summer. There's yeah. a bit of a haze in the air. Yeah. So that and feeds into it as well a bit. I think it's a little bit more obvious with the third book. Right. Color. Yeah. Mainly color. Okay. Okay. The final book in the trilogy was fittingly called End. The scale of the ambition increased with each publication, and this crowning glory was the apogee of the design aesthetic that had served the work so well across the first two installments. The work was about to reach a whole new audience in a blockbuster exhibition at the prestigious French Festival of Photography at Arles in 2016. And the collaborative effort that went into making End was the precursor for how that show came together. I knew immediately, because that was my first show, um, I knew immediately that I definitely wanted to have a strong musical element to it and that the, the exhibition design would be very, very important. I knew instantly it was going to be Niall who was going to create, uh, curate the show and then Dave was going to create music around it. So what happened was, whilst we were thinking about the show and thinking about the book, what I actually did was I just said, what? well, I was already kind of aware of what everyone was, what everyone's been working on anyway, but it was, it was literally just a case of asking Niall, well, what are you working on now? Let's see what happens if we just sort of, you know, push the drawings up against the images <laughs> yeah. and then it was similarly with Dave like moving what, two pieces of furniture together <laughs> well yeah well it was interesting to see what happens if we just kind of rub them up against each other yeah. you know yeah, so yeah, they yeah. wasn't they weren't commissioned the, the, the drawings weren't commissioned for That's the book and either but the music wasn't commissioned for the show okay, either it, it was like this is what Dave is working on at the moment this is in and around the same similar palette of sounds um, but it wasn't directly commissioned yeah. for the show as such. So it was just, it was interesting to see just how they kind of brushed up against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same way that things brush up against each other on the street, you know, <laughs> kind, of, and kind of randomly. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes things happen. The Eamon, Niall and David collaboration, which gelled so successfully on end, found another level of expression at their debut show together on the hallowed turf of Arles. So the show in Arles was an, was an overview of all the work up to that point. Yeah. And we split it into three rooms and um, not separate rooms, but very, very clearly defined sections. Pertaining um, to the books. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it was I on an end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but well, we definitely wanted to over deliver, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a huge opportunity. But again, it was very much yeah, just like let's see what happens when we when we rub these things up against each other. Yeah. I mean, it was still. I was really. I was very. I was adamant that we would. It would still be 
we're just showing prints. Yeah. We're showing paper prints on a wall. Mm-hmm. Just within then that we we tried to be as well. It wasn't like we were trying to be even groundbreaking. And to be honest, we were like we were still surprised that it got the reaction that it got. Yeah. We were more surprised. Yeah. We were, we were surprised by how surprised people were because for <laughs> us, like for yeah. us, it was just this felt like absolutely the natural yeah. way to show the work and like. Yeah, it, it really was. And people were surprised it was our first show. Mm-hmm. And that's when it dawned on us. It was like, well, yeah, it is our first photography show, but we've been, we have been creating spaces for people to move into yeah. um, for 20 odd years. The Dublin Trio's debut exhibition was a storming success. Writing in The Guardian, Sean O'Hagan said, Eamon Doyle steals the show at the Recont Darl Photography Festival. The striking images from his trilogy of Dublin street life, Eye on an End, have been transformed into a radical installation that merges dramatic presentation with an ambient soundtrack by the electronic musician David Dunahoo and abstract drawings by artist Niall Sweeney. Visitors must negotiate their way through grids of photographs on diagonal boards that divide the space, while other images have been printed so big they take up an entire wall. All of the praise heaped upon the show stems from that same sense of awe that would strike me so hard at the RHA three years later. I say all this hoping that one day you too will get to see what I mean if you haven't already done so. Mirroring the painful synchronicity of the corresponding breakthrough two years previously, the highs from the show's ecstatic reception at Arles were cruelly offset by the news that Eamon's mother's battle with cancer was nearing an end. And at that point in my mum's illness, it was like right at that point because she was she was hoping to come over and she was actually going to try and travel to. She was in late stage with her with her cancer at that time, and. She was still hoping to actually go to Lourdes, actually, because we would have gone there as kids. Oh, yeah. And she was going to go and visit there with her sisters and, you know, with the hope that maybe, I don't know. Yeah. But um, she wasn't even well enough to to travel at that point. So that was a really, that was really uh, difficult for me that she she didn't get to go over and see that show. Mm-hmm. But that's that was that was happening and that was 2000, summer of 2016. But she died in 2017, about eight months later. <clears throat> so, um, actually, I found the letters. So, there's, there's, we incorporated a lot of these, a lot of my mum's letters in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think first thing that happened was we found all these letters after she died. So. Um, she had been writing letters to my brother pretty much every day. My brother died in 2000, and, or sorry, 17 years previously. He died young. He was 33, 1999. Um, and my mom never recovered from that at all. I mean, the, the most difficult thing I've ever experienced was watching my mom's um, grieving for my brother. Much worse than watching my mother die or my father die, actually. It was mm-hmm. just watching, just 
watching my mother go through that grief. But that's what these letters were about. So these letters, she was basically writing, she was writing letters to my brother nearly every day um, as some kind of way, I guess, of, 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 of dealing with that or coping with that. And some of them would be just small little hand, they're all handwritten sh- short notes and some would be kind of longer, a page or two. But they're pretty much 17 years of letters, boxes and boxes and boxes of them that we didn't know existed. Nobody knew existed. No, no, we were completely unaware of them. We wasn't surprised, I guess, when when we came across them, but we weren't aware that she was doing this. So actually, yeah, so the first thing that happened was I'd, I'd, we'd found all these letters and I'd taken boxes and boxes of them into town with me. And I don't know why, but I started to scan the letters. And then um, I just wanted to somehow kind of acknowledge them um, somehow. So I scanned maybe 50 to 100 letters and layered them all on top of each other just to see kind of what would happen. So I actually have that piece, which the original piece was just just around the corner, Mm -hmm. um, which is about 50 letters all layered on top of each other. And that was the first thing that actually happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I had already planned to go and... I had it in my head and there was something on the island myself I've been talking about and Dave um, about me going and shooting outside of the city just doing so the, the first three books became I mean it wasn't really conceived as a trilogy as such but it just so happened that there was three books mm-hmm. and they were all shot in and around this area and the last one was called End um, which, which again, in a very Beckettian way, is uh, Eamon and Nyland, and uh, yeah, and that's I'd seem I'd seem to remember being called end, and then we realised. <laughs> oh right, yeah. <laughs> well, it, 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 Samuel would approve, right? You didn't yes. know. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but it was a nice, yeah, it was a nice way of kind of just closing off that that yeah. that, that work. So I did. The thought was definitely that I would. Um, move out of the, move out of the city, and, and I've always been drawn to the west of Ireland and mm-hmm. specifically to Connemara. The pull of the west brought a bereaved Eamon to Connemara and to Renville House where the universe in conjunction with William Butler Yeats contrived to spark his imagination in a new way. Thereafter, the cave work started to take shape rapidly. Bob Quinn's epic series Atlantean, which proposes that Irish heritage is much better understood from a maritime perspective in relation to Africa and Western Europe, had invoked thoughts of the sea in Eamon's head, which in a very roundabout way was what brought him to the car park at Renville, where all was revealed. It definitely wasn't, I wasn't going to try and illustrate any of the ideas of the Atlantean. Yeah. Uh, but I always loved the three films that he had made yeah. and I'd read the book and I was fascinated in that subject anyway. So, mm-hmm. And there's those, those Atlantean connections with North Africa, Spain, mm-hmm. West Coast of France. So that was sort of loosely kind of in my head and I was like, okay, listen, I, I'd like to maybe meet some people who are working with the sea, meet some fishermen. And so the, anyway, Ross, my friend, knew a, a guy who traded in fish. I don't think he was a fisherman himself, but he was a fish trader. And I'd arranged to meet him with Ross um, in Renville House. Um, 
which has got its own great story with Yates and doing their seances and that the story around Renville is great and was, mm. I was kind of already aware of that and had never been to Renville so I was kind of keen to go there and it turns out he was actually doing a, he ran a small amateur dramatics company in Connemara um, so they were going to be doing this small play in Renville House in one of the small function rooms and then we were going to go and meet him in the bar afterwards so I wasn't I didn't realise that that's what was going to be happening but that was that turned out to be the plan. So we arrived and just as we parked in the car park, I saw this woman just kind of float by the front of the hotel in a really long black, long black dress with a veil over her head. Just this very ghostly figure mm-hmm. just kind of floated almost across the front of the hotel and into the, in, in, in the front door. And I was like, oh, it, it, it struck me, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, what's going on there? So then we ended up going up to this to the play that they were producing, and it's fascinating. So it was just that the, the theatre company that was actually this guy and his partner, and the partner was the woman in the dress. And I don't know what the name of the play was, but it was um, about Yeats and his seven muses. And each for each different muse, she put on a different headscarf as she played each of the different women. Mm-hmm. And we were just sitting in this tiny little room in Renville House and I was there was like it was a very faulty towers the whole thing mm-hmm. it was like two old women <laughs> sitting in the corner and then I think a couple and their young kid and then me and Ross and that was it and <laughs> I was just it was it was just a very odd surreal exact little, place for a, the right place for an epiphany <laughs> well, well absolutely well I mean there was a few things a few things kind of happened in sequence one was this woman in the dress then there was seeing this seeing her just put on these mm. different headscarves these different colored headscarves um and then i just remembered driving home the next day just all i could see was these draped figures it was like she was driving home all mm-hmm. the way back to dublin i could all they actually they were all wearing red mm-hmm. just kind of red draped figures all the way home and I was like okay well this is this is what I'm gonna end up shooting and um the work just yeah before I before I had even really thought about it I'd shot it mm-hmm. you know what I mean um mm-hmm. so the whole thing just became this kind of um this kind of meditation on on on, on um unresolved grieving mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um but it was it wasn't so much, although it was all part of it. It was about, you know, my mum's recent death, my mother's, my, my brother's death 17 years previously. Mm-hmm. But very much this was about my mother's kind of unresolved grief that she, for my, for my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up incorporating a lot of the letters in the book. Yeah. And I must have been sometime around while we were thinking about that, that I'd asked Dave... I don't even know if I asked Dave or not but it was just something that we had agreed was going to happen mm-hmm. that he was going to write this piece of music mm-hmm. so then so that ended up being included in the book and then we used the letters and then we also used the shape of the headstone so the K mm-hmm. on the front is actually half of the the shape that ended up on the on, on the top of the headstone and then the work, yeah, it just sort of it 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 
it decided itself what it was going to be before I even realised mm-hmm. um, what was happening. So, mm-hmm. is that is that kind of an indication of how primal grief is, and how how effortless is the wrong word, but the way that it kind of made itself, the way that you were, you know, that because my point being that I don't think. I don't. I think grief. I've I've experienced it myself in mm-hmm. lots of ways. I don't think it really. I I don't think um, you go through grief. I think grief goes through you. And I think the 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 benefit of being an artist in that space is that you can kind of turn that energy into something. And and you might not know what it is, but it's it's bringing you with it. Does that make absolutely? I mean, the whole experience obviously is 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 very primal anyway. Certainly losing a parent. And or certainly a, and losing, a mother. Losing a mother. And I think it was certainly amazing to have, um, to have that outlet. You know, somebody, yeah. somebody said to me at the time, uh, after she died, they said, listen, you'll find that she'll leave you something, you know, it may not reveal itself just yet, but you know, it will. And that's very, but, this revealed itself really straight away mm-hmm. to me, and it was. It, it, I had shot the work, and we were we we were already in production with the book before I really realised what was happening, mm-hmm. and that was that happened in. Um, I think the book was made and ready twelve months later. Just the idea of the cover and the headstone and the shape, and the letters and everything about it, and the fact of how much she's in this book and her. The letter, yeah, you know. it felt like a collaboration with my mom. That was the that was the real yeah. feeling for me. Mm-hmm. It just did feel like a collaboration, and it was it was kind of beautiful to be mm-hmm. have her in there mm-hmm. um, as the sort of voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the, the the letters are just they're still too difficult to read <laughs> and that's what they're layered and I think we, we were very careful that you couldn't and they were pretty much illegible when when they're layered I mean there's little bits and pieces that you can mm-hmm. little words here and there that you can pick up on mm-hmm. but um but but essentially it's again like the source material for the music it's it's one long cry you know it's yeah. it's one long primal cry That's the voice of Kitty Gallagher, recorded in Letterkenny County, Donegal in 1951 by Alan Lomax. That's Kitty, like Catherine, with a K. This was the source material for the score by David Donoghue, which hung in the air around the pictures at the RHA. The lament at the heart of Eamon's collaboration with his closest ally is so finely calibrated and gracefully executed that it renders grief a kind of weightless thing. For me, it's the best visual summation of what remains after the body dies. In these powerful pictures, after life, the spirit lives. Freeing himself in such a manner creatively was also liberating in other ways. 
Yeah, I mean, beyond that, the real gift for me with this was that it completely liberated me from, you know, realizing what I could do. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of going into art college with thoughts of being a painter. Um, it was one of it was funny, interestingly, because I, when we went down to, I went down to meet Bob Quinn. Um, he wrote he wrote an essay for us for the yeah. the, the last book, and um, I showed him some of the work, and I showed him this book. And he opened it up and he went, oh, you're a painter. Right. And it was really, really nice. I was yeah. like, <laughs> it was just, and I'd already had that kind of, I started to just feel kind of liberated in terms of just, this just freed me up, freed my mind up, I think. Mm -hmm. And to just kind of go, oh, yeah, like, I can just do whatever, whatever the hell I want. That freedom to experiment with new forms has already found expression in the cinematic project X, which was commissioned by RTE for the Illumination series last summer. Just like in K, X is a place where old ghosts meet and are reconciled. It's all looking back on each other. So, I mean, in the, in the K book, so in the, the black and white images of the water, they're all shot in mm. the small pool yeah. down in Wicklow. Which yeah. was basically my brother and myself's pool, yeah. where we played. It was a hermit crab pool. It was a small little pool, mm -hmm. and so all those images of the water in there are from that pool. Yeah. Um, but all of the images of of Peter coming out of the water mm -hmm. in the X book are coming him coming out of that pool. Right. So it's the same pool, you know, yeah. that happened, and it was it was I don't even know. If it, I, I don't think I had even planned it that way. And then then we ended up shooting all that stuff mm. on my brother's birthday. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. So the whole it was actually bookended by we, we we it was shot over quite a quite a few nights, but it was three main shoots. One was on my dad's birthday, which I didn't realize. Yeah. One was on my brother's, and then the last we should, we finished it on my mom's birthday. So it was really nicely bookended, wow. and that that it's just that whole that 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 part of the world is a very very powerful place for me anyway to be. And I yeah. I, I wasn't even able to go down there again. Yeah. Until. Um, it was too, I mean, we, we, we grew up there every summer and I kind of stopped being able to be down there by myself after my brother died. Mm -hmm. So since 1999 mm -hmm. and only now after making the X film and mm -hmm. after my dad has passed, am I actually able to go down and be down there by myself? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I feel like, okay, I can kind of either spend way more time down there or walk away from there. I don't really mind either, either one would be fine. Sure. There's some sort of resolution yeah, the, the, of, of the, sorts. The X, it's kind of marked that for me. We spoke at the start about tapestries and threads, but the well of inspiration that springs eternally from that hermit crab pool in British Bay is reflected in the contours of all of the work. The X marks both the spot and point of departure for the now that it started, never ending Eamon Doyle picture show I, I just have this sense of urgency because um, I came back to it late um, you know after you know I really came back to it like sort of six years ago mm -hmm. and I just have this incredible sense of urgency about okay I have a lot of a lot of catching up to do mm -hmm. in terms of actually out, output mm -hmm. Um not it all feeds into it obviously so it wasn't like wasted 20 years by any means but mm -hmm. now is the time 
to make to make the work. And what a piece of work. We're nearly done here on episode one of We Are The Makers. So to sum up, this is a story entirely resistant to being summed up, as it's a work in progress and very much ongoing. The maker's work is never done. Mercifully, for us, the big wheel keeps on turning and makers keep on making. As good as it's been up to this point, the only thing I'm absolutely certain of is that the best is yet to come from Eamon Doyle. Just a word of warning to anyone feeling robbed of the couple of hundred minutes it's taken to get to this point in the story, however. Before we finally called it a day on the January chat marathon, we made a date to meet up in the year 2046 and talk about the next 25 years, so something to look forward to. Needless to say, with so much tape on the cutting room floor, there were many pearls of wisdom left behind in the dust. So here's just a couple of random parting shots to send you on your way. Of course, Eamon was in a band called Nirvana. I was in a band called Nirvana, yeah. Well, before Nirvana, but yeah, and then we... <laughs> I was I was in it briefly. Um, I, w- I was playing the bass, but I wasn't very good at it. And then some of the members of the band formed another band. And I was still with them, and... Kieran, the guitarist of the band, decided to call it the Electric Monk and the interconnectedness of all beings. So, not as catchy as Nirvana. Not as catchy, and <laughs> we were pretty good. <laughs> then there's a whole extensive Jamaican adventure, which is a tale for another day. But perhaps a little gem from it is a fitting epilogue for a story so magically lit up by simple twists of fate. Suffice to say that Eamon was mugged within hours of arrival in Kingston, which set off a chain of events whereby bad fortune was transformed into good vibrations in glorious style. Between the jigs and the rastas, he ended up in Nine Mile, the estate where Bob Marley was born and is buried in St Anne's Parish. And our Eamon didn't just get to play football with my hero Burning Spear, who's a fellow parishioner of St Anne's, but he also got to take the weight off on the seat of Talking Blues. I basically got to stay there for a week <laughs> in Bob's house, wow. in his birth house, with the aunt and two of the cousins who were basically looking after the place for the time when all the celebrations were happening. So it was just the most, I was I ended up like <laughs> just staying in the house. Yeah. Yeah. That I was, I'd looked at in all these films and yeah, just this like an hour into the whole, my, my time there, I was up and giving a tour around the area and was, we were up on the hill right outside the house and I'm sitting on this, I'm sitting down and just giving out our, we're eating oranges and stuff and smoking a little bit. And then I'm just sitting on this big stone, which is, it's like a big kind of really soft curve in the stone right outside the small little stone house that Bob grew up in. I'm sitting back, lying back, and I'm a little bit stoned. And then his aunt says to me, says, you know what, you know what stone that is? And I'm going, no. I was going, that's, does you know the song Talking Blues? And I'm going, yeah. And she's going, so the line is, cold rock was my bed last night, or cold ground was my bed oh, last right. night, and rock was my pillow too. And it's the rock where he used to sleep when oh, he was thrown God. out of the house for being bold. Like, yeah. and I'm just <laughs> I'm sitting there. 
Well, I'm, I'm completely obsessed with yeah. Marley at the time, and it was just this most amazing kind of like full circle thing. was written and presented by Donald Deneen, edited and produced by Ian Cudmore with original music by Ulton O'Brien. This quarterly series was commissioned by Sullis Nua in Washington, D.C. 